Anyway, it was uh, the beginning of a, you know, a great love affair that has continued on. Have I said too much? Pretty soon you'll be telling stories that can't be told. It's just mind-boggling. Welcome to my podcast, Whistler Stories That Need to Be Told. I'm here to uh, introduce my friend Roger McCarthy, who I've known for decades uh, since I first came to Whistler. And um, Roger has uh, been quite influential over the years in the ski business, so I thought it'd be interesting to interview him and see where he came from. Um, Roger's uh, come through the, uh, the business from the bottom up, and he knows the business from the bottom up. So, um, Roger, I, I wanted to ask you, why did you come to Whistler? And, you know, what, you know, what happened when you came to Whistler? I started skiing in New Zealand when I was, I don't know, seven years old. My family belonged to a ski club uh, on Mount Ruapehu in the North Island of New Zealand. Anyway, the caretakers of the club, they were New Zealanders, but they had been in Whistler the year that Whistler opened. And wow. they had worked at the Chequemus Inn. And they, I was intrigued by a film that uh, the husband had made. And I must have seen it three or four times, and I said, that looks like an amazing place, Whistler. He said, look, if you're interested in a job there, I could probably set something up. <clears throat> anyway, long story short, I got on a plane in middle of November in, uh, in New Zealand and came to Whistler and, and started my job as a, as a handyman. So I washed dishes and, and fixed whatever was broken and drove the snow plow and uh, all kinds of things like so that. So you were pretty young. <clears throat> 22 the day I landed in uh, Vancouver. And so Whistler was pretty rough, uh, <clears throat> much like it was when I arrived in 73, but probably even rougher because I think, you know, things changed quickly in those days. And he, here I thought I was coming to some major North American resort. And I, <laughs> I get off the, came up on the train actually, and got off at the Alta Lake Station, which is halfway along Alta, uh, right. Alta Lake. Yeah, Chaplinville. Yeah, Chaplinville. Then dragged my bag down the railway line and threw it up from, there was four of guys, and we threw our bags up one over the other. And, and uh, then a car came along, we threw all our bags in the back of that car, and then my bag disappeared. And I thought, I wonder if I, I'm ever going to see it again. <laughs> anyway, it was uh, the beginning of a, you know, a great love affair that has continued on. And I've worked um, in a lot of places around the world. And I'm always asked by people, you know, after they've had a drink or two, they say, oh, you've skied a lot of places. What's your favorite place? And, you know, you better be pretty elegant in your answer. So I usually say something like, you know, this place is pretty good wherever I happen to be. You know, whether it be Blue Mountain in Ontario or Trombone, Quebec. Or... And to be bluntly honest, we have five lakes on the valley floor and with two amazing mountains that are, you know, over 5,000 vertical feet. Skiing, so mm -hmm. um, I think those two pieces really. There's lots of places call themselves a four season resort, and you know the the fourth season is a swimming pool, uh, and I think that's where Whistler really differentiates itself globally. Right, and and you know it's changed so much. And where did you start working? I mean, there couldn't have been a lot of jobs. There was um, the the Chequemusin, the Christiana, the Highland Lodge. Ski Boot opened that winter in January, mm -hmm. and there were 25-cent beers. 
How about that? Right. <laughs> and and, uh, and the boot that. was its the boot is a legend, and you know they tore it down, and the legend lives on. No kidding. Yeah, we've had some memories there. But the mountain was really the industry in town. It was it was the engine driving whatever was happening here, and you know it's back in the day we had the old uh, Mueller gondola, it was a four passenger gondola, went to mid station, and then we had the red chair, and then the red chair is a double chair, and it was it was a I don't know a seventeen or eighteen minute ride on summer speed and a fourteen fifteen minute ride on winter speed. And long you were ways at up. the bottom of it. I loaded that chair yeah. for a whole season. That was my first job. And it was a long ride up there. Uh, but that was fun working on the lifts when we were young. And like most kids that come here, you learn the goings-on of the mechanics of the mountain. And, yeah. and it was really intriguing for me. You know, you learn. You know, it was just so new to me. And then there was the skiing. And I don't think I saw the top of the mountain for months it snowed every day, and, and uh, we were so lucky. It was ski, skiing forever. I know you worked on the lifts for a while. You worked on the T-bars, because I remember seeing you in the T-bar shack there, and that was a prime job, wasn't it? Because you could, you had to wait for the patrol to do the avalanche control, so you're waiting there and you know, kind of hanging out and eating your lunch and stuff um, until the, the lifts opened. So what did, you, what did you do on as a lifty, and how did you get to know the patrol and get involved there? Um, Hugh Smythe told me this, that, you know, uh, these guys that come from New Zealand, they don't even last the whole winter. So we put them in the T-bar in the shack at the top because <clears throat> you only have to train them to do one thing, and that's push the button if the T if the doesn't retract. The emergency stuff. And stop. so <laughs> here I am working on the T-bar, and uh, we had a huge snow, huge winter, uh, my, sec my second winter here. So that'd be 72, 73 winter. The patrol used to use me to carry explosives because they didn't they never had enough guys on weekends. So here, here I am, my second year here. I'm skiing around with a pack load of bombs. And the first question I ask is, what happens if I fall over? One of the patrols says, don't ever fall over. So I was terrified. It's funny how you remember these oh. things. <laughs> well, in particular, when you think about it, you've got 25 pounds of explosives on your back. And as time goes on, you find out, you know, this is the highest speed explosives money can buy. This stuff's made for underwater crack blasting. to open oh, and make yeah. the snow slide. Exactly. Yeah. So second winter on uh, lifts. Uh, the patrol used me a lot. And then, um, and so I said, that's it. I have to understand, I, I, I can't understand why I throw a bomb there and nothing happens, and I throw one there, and a huge avalanche just rips out. <clears throat> so I said, okay, I'm going to get on the patrol, and I'm going to take you know, an avalanche course. So I did an industrial first aid course in Vancouver, because I was terrified coming, you know, what if I come across somebody and they've, you know, they're half dead. You, know, you didn't I, have a lot of experience. <clears throat> I had none. <laughs> none. <laughs> so I did an industrial first aid course, which, was, which is really uh, in-depth. Um, so I so I had an industrial first aid ticket and I took an avalanche course, and I signed up for it myself. I was going to pay for it, and the company said, "No, we're going to pay you to go." And then uh, they sent me on another avalanche course in January to um, snowboard in Utah, and so I had two avalanche courses, industrial first aid course. I was the highest qualified guy on on the ski patrol, and I had no experience. 
but the, they send me to all kinds of ugly situations and over a period of time I became more seemed, comfortable. You seemed to be in the right place at the right time. <laughs> yeah. They needed somebody like you. You're, you're very personable, you're a good speaker and, and I know you've had some, you had some training in New Zealand as, as far as business management goes and you could talk to talk with the management so you, you became the patrol director, you became the safety supervisor, you, you managed um, safety and, and, and operations. How did How'd you, how did you figure all that out with, you know, <laughs> just being a good guy? When I came out of uh, high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I thought for me to go to university for three or four years not knowing what I want to do, mm. that doesn't seem like a very smart idea. And my uncle hooked me up with this very fast-growing company, um, and I worked there as a management trainee. Then I applied for a job with the fastest growing company in New Zealand, which was New Zealand Towel Supply. And I, was, I got hired on as a management trainee. And I started out driving a truck, delivering you know, clean laundry, and picking up dirty stuff. And then I worked through all the plant. Because uh, it's got you know, huge washing machines and, and big ironing departments. And, and I supervised... Um, I supervised... Uh, individual sections as I worked through uh, the plant and learned how, to, how the whole thing worked. And at the same time, I was doing a, a diploma in industrial management at night in, uh, in, in Auckland, in New Zealand. So, so I sort of knew that, you know, I wanted to... You're a management trainee. Yeah, I was a management trainee, yeah. 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 So then I thought, if I'm not careful, I'm going to be 24 years old and have a wife and two kids and I'm never going to see the rest of the world. So before that happened, I jumped on a plane and came here. And I thought, I'm going to be here for a year and I'm going to get the ski thing out of my system. But, you know, I got here and it... It's it still just, there. It just, <laughs> it, I think there was a whole... There's two or three things that were really fabulous. To begin with, I was a chronic asthmatic in New Zealand. And... I've never had an issue since the day I landed here. And I don't have any issues with uh, allergies or anything else. So th the climate really agreed with me. And then I think in terms of, you know, the training that I'd had in, in, in management, my industrial management uh, work, um, those things helped. <clears throat> but I didn't come in here thinking about, oh, I'm going to be a skier and manager one day. And those things just kind of happened. And uh, I became a supervisor, uh, not so much a supervisor, but I ended up sort of being one of those guys that could get, go anywhere and run anything uh, on the mountain. And then patrols started to use me to throw explosives on a weekend because they only had four pros. And so I'd be out there. And so you, you remember this, first time you throw a bomb. You're just, you're hooked. It's fun because and you know you can go ski the powder right after that and it's safe. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now, you know, you had a, a lot of responsibility to manage all, you know, the patrol, the lifties and whatnot. The peak chair goes in. Tell us about the peak chair and how that changed, you know, everything. I guess it was the, the arms race, wasn't it, with Blackcomb that made that happen. But um, God, what a huge expansion of the mountain. <sighs> We were both a lot younger then. But uh, I, when I look back at the peak chair, Blackcomb put in the Seventh Heaven T-Bar, and then they put a chairlift in there. And, um, you know, you, you could stand almost anywhere on, 
Whistle Mountain, along as you went on Creekside, and you could look at that thing. And so we had to look at that T-bar for yeah. a year. Yeah. And it ate me up inside. It was the Mile High <laughs> Mountain, and it kind of took, <laughs> oh, took no, the, they, the shine off they, Whistler. They, they, yeah. And you know, not that we're competitive, huh? <laughs> but um, having said that, you know, we needed to do something. And uh, the leadership of the company bought uh, a fixed grip, in other words, a slow triple chair, and put it into the peak. And it had a mid-offload on it, on North Face Low. Because of the weather, because they yeah. figured the weather would stop yeah. you from going to the peak all the time, so you could get off halfway exactly. and ski the shale slope. Exactly. Yeah, right. Although that never happened. Or I think people thought, well, you know, if you're too scared to go up that next section, um, where Tower 11 used to be. I used to know the numbers of all the towers and exactly where they were, but that's too long ago. But in any event, you know, we put in the peak chair, and that was just one of the most uh, outrageous lifts in North America, particularly in the amount, when you think about it, it services five alpine balls, which means that, you know, we were throwing bombs on that stuff. Five catchments of, of yeah. snow and yeah. all that avalanche danger, yeah. and then lift access, which we didn't have for, I don't know, 20 years. We had to hike up there, and so you could hike up there a week later and get great snow, but uh -huh. after the peak chair went in, you had lots of danger because there were so many people there, and it's freaky for you to well, I think try and manage it was, that. It was stressful. Yeah. But you know, we had a good team. You know, the, the top 12, 14 people who were on the patrol, both the men and the women, were very committed and very focused. Focused yeah. and concerned about if we're gonna open it, it's gonna be safe, people are gonna have a great time. And so, you know, when you think about all those cornice ridges, just the explosives it took to get those things kind of safe. You know, you remember being in the in the helicopter, and we got the door off, and we hang. I'm hanging out the door, and I've got, you know, a bomb that's four shots, and I get a hold of the thing, and I get it between my legs, and then I light the fuse, and I'm hanging out the door, trying to figure, and I'm telling the pilot up a bit, up a bit, over a bit, over a bit, to the right, to the right, to the right, up a bit, up a bit, and then I light the fuse, and I saw shots lit, and I got this thing, and I'm looking out at the cornice, and it's got icicles hanging off it and there's water dripping and you're right it. there you're and right you, beside it it's so alive i know and and you, you get this thing and you kind of get it out the door and into the middle of the cornice and then you tell you the shots you know shots lit shots you know thrown yeah and then the helicopter pulls out and you fly away and then you get way the heck out of the way and, and then you watch it <laughs> watch all hell break loose <laughs> <laughs> that was fun that yeah, was that I mean, was fun that's... but it was it was intense man i mean we used to say a hundred thousand nuts and bolts flying in formation yeah well, and you're carrying bombs around and lighting fuses yeah with 70 pounds of lucky ice. we were young and dumb <laughs> no we, we we figured it out or you know the industry figured it out we were on the leading edge it was well we wrote procedures incredible. for all that stuff exactly we yeah. wrote procedures for the avalanche mm -hmm. we wrote procedures for for hand charging we wrote procedures for shooting the guns we wrote procedures for helicopter bombing and they became the standard across western canada yeah and you can't get any more experience on a mountain than being a pro patroller your hands-on experience knowing that it's very it's very dangerous and i thought i think you brought that to the to the table when you you moved on and and, and went to other resorts you may not have had an avalanche control program at mont Tremblant, 
but you certainly knew about uh, public safety and, and that. And then you took that, I think, when you, when you joined Interwest, that was, a, that was a, a great move for you and a very smart move for them. How did that come about? I mean, you moved <laughs> across the valley and, you know, that was almost like deserting. But, no, it but was, it was a, timing was right. The, well, one of, one of the things I realized was that I could only get so high in an organization if I wanted to stay in the, in the safety side of the business. There was a, the head, the, the mountain manager at Blackcomb quit his job, and I thought I'm going to apply for that job. So I applied for that job, and I actually met with Hugh Smythe, and Hugh said, you know, we'd like to have you. But we have this uh, policy of promoting from within, and so we're going to promote somebody from within our organization. Something like two weeks later, I'm driving home, and my phone rings, and it's Hugh. And he says, uh, why don't you come over and let's sit down and chat. So I sit down and chat, and he says, you know, we're looking for a new director of human resources. And what our consultant's telling us is find somebody who knows something about your business. Not necessarily great human resources skills, but if they understand what's required for all these guys that are driving cats at night and the guys out running, you know, high-pressure water, making snow. At, you Seasonal know, employees, yeah. employee housing. And all all that, those uh, things, yeah. and, you know, find somebody from your business. <clears throat> so Hugh calls me and says, would you be interested in being the director of human resources? And I thought about it a lot, and I thought, you know, there's only two people that get to deal with all the employees at all the levels. And one's, one's the guy in the corner office and the other one's the director of human resources. Thank you for listening today as Roger and I discussed his Whistler years. Join us on my next episode and hear how Roger tells his story in becoming one of the most influential ski resort executives. If you have a Whistler story that needs to be told, please email me at brucew at I would love to hear your story.